morning, Cross Connection. It's Pastor Mark here wishing you a happy Father's Day for all you dads out there. Uh, what an awesome and special thing it is to be a dad, and we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. Um, so Pastor Miles asked that I would share with you the, this morning in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, so we'll be doing that. And then next week, uh, make sure that you tune in. Uh, Pastor David Guzik uh, is going to be sharing with us. I think one of the finest modern-day Bible commentators. Um, his uh, website gets millions of hits and has taught so many people around the globe. His uh, commentaries are brought into so many different languages, from Arabic to Spanish, uh, so many different languages around the world and are teaching uh, not only people but also pastors. And so we're very thankful to have him with us. So make sure you tune that in. So um, I'd like to back up a little bit and... and just to, we've been the last few weeks, and what we found from chapter 2 of Nehemiah is that in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, it's about what God did. It's about the miracle that he did to uh, send a servant who, who fasted and prayed uh, by order of a pagan king to come restore Jerusalem and the walls around it and ultimately be part of the restoration of a covenant, and that's what this symbolizes. And then uh, so that's what God did. And then in chapter 3, we get to see the personal responsibility that the people took in this, the accountability they had in this. And so it's largely about what the people did serving God. And so today uh, in chapter 4, we're going to look at the relationship between God's sovereignty, um, what God does, and what man's responsibility is, what man does, and Look how they re, they interact with one another, how they work with one another. Uh, we're going to look at the re relationship between those two disciplines. So join me if you would. Let's pray first and uh, ask the Lord to teach and minister to our hearts. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, this opportunity to sit before you and Lord to be taught from your word and to consider the effect that it has on us today. We're so thankful for your servant Nehemiah and the story of the restoration of the covenant and the restoration of those walls in Jerusalem Lord uh, as part of that. And so Lord teach us, uh, walk with us and guide us through this. In Jesus name we pray and ask these things. Amen. So we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4 and starting in verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? stones that are burned. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Very discouraging. And so the enemy, the enemy of Israel, comes to them and tries to threaten them and try to discourage them. And we need to look at some of the language here and some of the situation here. This is a very real threat. Uh, he is doing this before it says the army. And so there are people there that either represent the military, it appears, um, either, you know, 
we don't know if those are enlisted people or leaders, but they are there. They are part of the audience. They've come to observe, and he's invited them to observe what's going on and to engage them in this conversation. And then he goes into the, some of the specific things, and the people are going to hear this. Uh, he asks if they're going to offer sacrifices, and we know they were not allowed to offer sacrifice. They could not offer sacrifices yet. And so... Um, are they going to do something that is against the grain or illegal? Um, are they going to do that? Are they going to go against the king? So insinuating that there's a spirit of rebellion there. Uh, then he references the burnt stones. And we know that these burnt stones, uh, it may be limestone, I believe, is the material they used in this instance, that um, they were unusable. And they had been there. They were physical symbols of the tearing down of the wall. Not even, this isn't even the first time that this wall had been burned. And these, so um, it was a very graphic reminder of the failure of the people. And so it reminded them of past failures. And then the comments about the foxes. And they knew very well this, both from prophecies given uh, earlier uh, in Isaiah and other places in the word, where it talks about what happens to cities that... Um, when they're judged, when the people uh, are out of covenant with God and how those cities become abandoned. And it says that the jackals and the foxes inhabit them. So a reminder was he talks about a fox climbing up it, trying to conjure up that image in these people's um, hearts and in their minds. Point one on your outline, the threats of the enemy are never a good representation of reality for God's people. I think at times um, the state of spiritual affairs, and I've really you know wanted to talk about this a bit, because um, I don't believe our own country is actually technically in rubble. Um, I think the state of state of spiritual affairs is quite exaggerated. Actually, um, the fact is is that God is not losing. Everything is going not surprising him. It's going I don't know necessarily according to his plan. My guess it could be, but. It's not surprising him. Basically, what is happening is happening, and he's well aware of it. The narrative that is being put out about the bad news, as we say, is really generated by a minority. It gets the majority of the airplay, so to speak, but it's generated by a minority. The enemy has limitations. And one of the mistakes we make, I believe, as believers sometimes is that we tend to classify the devil as just the opposite of God, that he has the equal powers, um, but somehow he's just the opposite. He's evil, but he has all the same powers of God. And that's just simply not true. The enemy doesn't know, uh, can't change your future. The enemy can't uh, get in your head and know what you're thinking. He doesn't have that ability. He's very limited in uh, his scope and his ability. Um, many times the things that he uses against us are the things that we freely give him. I would have to remind you that, you know, we've seen this lately in our news, like the purchase of Twitter as that's coming about, that um, they're finding out that so much of what is posted on social media, the place that we get our news, the place that we look to for truth many times mistakenly, uh, so much of it they're finding out is generated not by individual people, but actually by computer algorithms that this bad news is repeated. And the more we look at it, the more we see it. And so in a way, we're being corralled mentally and spiritually into this place to think that God is losing. And it's simply just not the truth. 
You also have to understand and, and put into perspective that many times in areas that think, look of areas of discouragement, um, areas where you could say we are losing, uh, that would call be depressing, that that's simply not the truth at all. In God's economy, that sometimes that that's victory. I would remind you that the day that um, the disciples were looking at that cross and a bruised and a bloodied uh, Jesus and uh, him going and being buried and put in that ground for three days, that did not look a lot like victory. That to them probably looked like failure. It looked like the end. Um, it was a cause for despair. It looked as though God somehow, Jesus had lost and it could not be further from the truth because we know that that cross and that grave would not hold him and that he would again rise in three days. And with that, the victory of the cross is declared and the salvation that is made available to you and I is a victory beyond all victories, the greatest victory known to mankind. I think we need to think about that and we need to remember that. Sometimes we forget how much God loves us in that sacrifice, what that meant, and the proof of how much he loves us. And I have to say that God's love for us is tremendous. And the fact that it, with his people, he's going to honor this covenant and go to great lengths of forgiveness uh, and grace to honor this covenant with his people says so much about his love for his people. You know, it's Father's Day, and we talk about that. I recently had a, a, an experience where... Um, my daughter was returning a car to a friend's house for her, and I was going to pick her up from the friend's house. And as we crossed over Bear Valley Parkway going down Ash, it goes from two lanes to one lane. And um, a car passed us on the right side um, when it became one lane. And the speed, normal speed on that, that piece of uh, road is about 50, 55 miles an hour. And he passed, narrowly missed me, and then narrowly missed my daughter on the right hand in the bike lane at over 80 miles an hour. Narrowly missing her, his car barely made it around the corner. And I think instinctively she honked. And when I, we came around the corner, she was at the light. And this guy was honking at her, raising a ruckus, and he literally pulled into the center of the intersection, flung the door open on his vehicle, uh, took his shirt off and was waving his arm around, threatening her, and he was going to her vehicle to fight or to pull her out of the vehicle. What he had no idea of is that her father was behind her. Now, I, I wish I could say that, you know, I got to settle things or tried to, you know, lead that man to Jesus. And um, it certainly wasn't the case. Um, I have to say that there was a visceral reaction, an uncontrollable reaction when I see, first of all, my daughter um, almost getting into an accident because of this guy, but the fact that now he's threatening my daughter. And there was a reaction and I could not control it, but he went from being a child of God in an instant to an enemy of me and my family. And I have to tell you, I stepped out of the kingdom. I was angry. And as he was approaching the car, he was 30 feet from the car, I was making some very quick decisions. And 
uh, those decisions were, am I going to get out and give this guy what for? Am I going to run him over with my truck? Um, I have a lot of things at my disposal to be able to thwart this threat. And I could feel my blood pressure and me getting more protective and the girl that grew up, you know, bouncing on my knee and reading stories, the one that um, does ministry with me, the one we've written music together, um, something took place in my heart and it was an anger that I could not describe to you. And thankfully, as she just light turned and she left and this guy was left in the middle of an intersection. Um, He was on methamphetamines, I believe. He was out of his mind Um, as she left the uh, intersection. I just followed her and it was over. God has a love for his people um, and a, a protection for his people. I think that's where that reaction that comes from us and us men, us dads. And it comes, it comes in, a, in a way that you can't control. It's something that is so deep and so moving and can cause us to do things we normally wouldn't think we would do or have to do. And it's there. I believe God put that in us. And I think we forget how much God loves us and the lengths and the amount of patience he has and how much he will go to war with his enemies, especially when his children are doing the work of God, when they're going about and they're trying to reestablish a covenant. What that encounter told me is, is the proper perspective when we're doing God's work is many times as believers, we fear what's going on in the world. We hear the bad news. We see the threat coming towards the car, so to speak. And the truth of the matter is the world and their ignorance, uh, the enemies of God and their ignorance, when they come towards us to threaten us, they have no realization that our Heavenly Father is right behind us. He is there. I mean, what are the odds of some guy in a um, in an intersection uh, threatening one of your family and that girl's dad is right behind her? Astronomical. And so God has, I believe, that heart for us and the world doesn't realize it, which leads me to this. Our perspective should not be that we are afraid of God's enemies, that we were trembling or shaking in our boots and we're feeling threatened and we're worried and we're agonizing. That's how the world should feel about us. They should be afraid of the God of the Hebrews. They should have a healthy respect for the protection that God gives us, the success he grants us in his name, especially when we are doing his work. Why? Not because we're threatening or we're righteous, but because of the righteousness and the investment that God has for us and in us in that cross. And so we we matter very, very much. You matter very, very much to God. In chapter 4 of Nehemiah, um, verse 4 we'll start in, there's a reaction. It says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn the reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. 
Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Point two in your outlines. Pray it back, don't pay it back. If the other kids are being mean, tell dad. You see, they didn't answer back or fight back when Sandballot and his crew um, were threatening and making fun and despising them uh, because they knew that ultimately the reason behind it was nothing to do with them is that they were making fun and challenging and despising God. And so they didn't answer back or fight. They did the best thing possible and the best way to uh, handle it is they did something in this situation called uh, imprecatory prayer. Basically, um, typically when we pray for people, we're praying for their well-being or a situation that comes out well. Uh, we're praying uh, that somehow God would intervene and there would be a glorious result. Well, imprecatory prayer is a, a little bit different. And in this case, they're basically taking the situation and they're going to tell God, even though God's heard the whole thing, but they're basically going to call God at his word and take that word and put it upon the threat or the enemy of God. And basically uh, what Nehemiah is doing is saying, ha, 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 back at you. And this is how he's doing it. They're taking, if you look at the language, part of the Deuteronomic blessing and also the curse and that agreement, that covenant with God, and they recite back some of the same language that if they failed, this would happen to them. So when it talks about being despised, that's in the, that's in the Deuteronic promise. Uh, being one of reproach, it going back on their heads, that's part of the promise. Giving them um, away as plunder to a land of captivity, that's part of the promise in Deuteronomy also. Uh, the fact that it's not covered and uh, that it would not be blotted out, but he, God would be made well aware of the sin and the threat, uh, how now it is the outside world that is breaking this covenant. They're using this covenant language, and you can already see some of the despondency, some of the uh, negative feelings that God's people have had uh, towards their failure in failing in the covenant, you can already see where they've gained some confidence and they're working their way back into this position of blessing. And now they're seeing this failure for what it was and they're putting it back on their enemies. And it is so cleansing because they're not engaged in the fight. They're handing this fight over to God. The prayer, it appears, empowered them to build the wall because that's what it said they did. The very next thing, they went in and they did a whole heap of work. And so they went back and they built the wall. They got it up to about half height. And I think it's great. And one of the things I love about Cross Connection is we'll take a, a moment out or time out when we come across a piece of scripture that explains a, um, a theological argument or uh, difference in God's community. And this is one of those areas, I think, that uh, explains it very well. For over 500 years, there's been, uh, between theologians, uh, there's been this, um, I'll say, a difference in looking at how we should react to the world. And one of them is, one camp uh, expresses God's sovereignty, that God is 
powerful, all powerful. Everything is sovereign. Everything happens according to God's time clock. And so the extreme of that can lead in a spiritual laziness in that if you're going to get saved, you're going to get saved. There's simply some people that will never go to be with God. And so why go and be evangelist uh, to them? It can, at an extreme level, can lead to that way of thinking. Uh, it can be uh, from an evangelist from an evangelical standpoint, excuse me, it can lead to a spiritual laziness if you're not careful because God is ultimately just going to take part in it. Uh, many times you'll hear some people say, well, I prayed about it and that's all I needed to do. I just needed to pray about it. And so there's that one extreme. And then on the other hand, there's another extreme and it's man's responsibility that somehow we are, you know, God has done what he's going to do and it's our responsibility to do all this work, that uh, it's our responsibility in all things, that it is totally up to us. And that can lead to another error. It can lead to an extreme, um, uh, a doer mentality so much that we leave no room for God to act, that we actually don't pray about things and we don't commit things to the Lord, that we just do what we feel is right and what scripture tells us to do. And the truth of the matter is, is both sides have a great truth to them. They're both right. In fact, it's not even that they meet in the middle. The truth is between sovereignty and God and man's responsibility is the, the truth is, is that they work together. And this piece of scripture demonstrates it so well. The people took an overwhelming threat, something they needed to take very seriously in front of the soldiers and everybody else and their past is being brought up and, and it's all being heaped upon them and it can be very discouraging and they take it because it is a spiritual thing and they give it to God in prayer immediately. That's the first thing they do. But then the second thing they do is they look at their responsibilities, their responsibility and their accountability in the covenant and it says they go to work. And if we can learn these disciplines, it is one of the key things in our Christian maturity. If we can learn to take these things into the spiritual realm first and pray about them and give, invite God to use his sovereign power in this problem. And then we can look at that and under the direction of God, go and do what he would have us do. Take the correct, right action. Do that. We could accomplish so much. I think of where we are now and um, in our state of California, we're in California, and in November 8th is when we have our elections. We'll be um, looking at, you know, the governorship and many other offices, and so those elections are going to happen four and a half months from now. That's how long approximately that Nehemiah prayed before he went to the king, or the king came to him rather, uh, to commission him, uh, ultimately to give him everything he needed to go and to rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, the finances, um, the direction, the time off, so to speak, the king was behind him. Four and a half months, coincidentally, we have about four and a half months until our election. And so um, how does this sovereignty and this um, responsibility work in a situation like this? Well. When you're there, I'll give you a little hint, and we'll do this together, but when you're there and you're putting $7 a gallon gas in your car, and that was just a few days ago, 
and you're grumbling perhaps and you're upset about that and we have california has the highest gas prices in the nation and i'm thankful that even at that i i can put gas in my car but i will tell you that i know so many people that were living so close to the margins so close to on their budgets there's a lot of people that they can't put that seven dollar a gallon gas in there and my heart breaks for them and uh, it's very hurtful and it's very hard so what can we do about it well while you're pumping that take that time when you're pumping that seven dollar a gallon gas and putting it in your car instead of grumbling or being upset about the condition i would encourage you to pray for the next four and a half months pray fast something um, but do and go and appeal to god's sovereignty um, for your brothers and sisters uh, out there, for the people who don't know the Lord, appeal to God's sovereignty to somehow fix this issue, this problem. Uh, and then practically, what do you do about it? Well, we have the opportunity in this nation. What a, what a beautiful, what a great right that we can vote. And so you go and you vote. And uh, I'll never tell you who to vote for, but you vote for God's uh, candidate, so to speak. You take your Bible out and, and you look at that and, and you move forward with that. And so as you do that, that is the responsibility. That is what you can do. There's other things you can do. Um, when you hear about these crazy bills that are being put forth, uh, uh, California being a, made a sanctuary state for abortion, things like that, you have the ability to write in. I mean, these politicians, um, they're all about public opinion. That's what they live for. And so um, they have, when the public comes up and they hear from people, they take that seriously. Uh, and you can bend their will uh, by doing that. So sending those emails to your representatives and letting them know uh, not only how you feel, but how God feels about this situation. Those are good practical things. I would encourage you that whoever your politicians are, your representatives, um, as they're sadly many times just the representatives of who we are as a people. I think of our own governor in our state. Can you imagine if uh, somehow the governor of our state um, was to uh, give his heart to Jesus in a great and a mighty way, in a transforming way? I mean, if you don't believe that that can happen, you only need to go back to the situation with Saul of Tarsus and to see how God changed his heart, one of the biggest enemies of the gospel and Jesus, and turned his heart and he became one of the greatest soldiers and wrote most of the New Testament and did some of the greatest things ever uh, for you and I to um, encourage us and to lead us. And so God can do that, praying for your representatives. Uh, you can change the world uh, by praying. And so I would encourage you in that. So Nehemiah chapter 4, verses uh, 7 we'll start in. It says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to close, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. They do it one more time. Um, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night, doing something practical. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know or see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. 
So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, and they told us ten times, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall, at the openings, and I set the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Very wise words. Point number three in your outline, the best way to stay on course is to remember why we fight. Nehemiah gives us those reasons and gave his people those reasons, and I believe it is a transformative moment for the people as they are just getting a little discouraged in the work. They're starting to um, slow down a little bit, and the threats just keep on coming. He says, to remember the great and awesome Lord. So remember what your position is. Remember um, the sacrifice he has made for you. Remember his history in the conquering of threats and remembering uh, the conquering of your enemies. And so what he has done. So God's reputation and his love for us. And then remember your brethren, your brothers, the people you, not just your relatives, but the people that you live around, your neighborhood, your community. And then your sons, remember your sons, your daughters, and your wives. And to God's people, when they talk of inheritance, they do not talk about money. What they're talking about when they talk of inheritance typically is they're talking about their families, their lineage, um, their sons and their daughters. And so uh, that's very important to them. So protect those things in, in that. And then lastly, and your houses. So the place you live and what you own. So he's telling them in a nutshell, uh, remember what we trust or who we trust, what we love and what we own. And I believe it galvanizes and, and transforms God's people in this situation to a, from a place of discouragement. Um, physical and spiritual weariness is setting in with God's people in this instance, the timing of it. And they're getting discouraged. Um, they're feeling very low. Judah, which is typically the, the place where all the, the warriors and the uh, important people and the saviors of Israel come out of Judah is very important. The tribe of Judah is um, kind of a, a top tribe, somebody that everybody looked to, so important. And Judah itself is putting out a, um, a negative uh, narrative, uh, one that is a little depressing, you know, a little negative. And, and so it's not doing anything to encourage the people. So even the leaders are starting to fail. I would encourage you in something. Um, leaders, uh, you dads we're talking to today, it is very important that that is not our narrative. It is very important to remember uh, why we're doing this um, and who we're doing this for. The Bible tells us to take heed. Uh, we do not want the enemy to control our narrative and our hearts and our attitudes and our minds and be discouraging. I'm, rest is so important. And sometimes you can't take that real rest that you want. And so that rest just takes the form of sitting and praying for a while. But that rest is so important. I know this 
summer. It was important for some of us. I know Pastor Miles is taking that rest, which is so important, and we want to support that. And some of the other pastors will be taking vacations and taking that rest. This is a time of year where we sit back and we'll look and, and consider the things of God for us to recharge us and to replenish us as we enter into fall. In church, we all start to gather more again, and, and we start to move forward again. And so I really encourage you, to take that rest, enter into the rest of the Lord. There's a, you know, it's famous in my house, famous quotes. And uh, it is, the truer you hold your course, the quicker you get to your destination. You travel faster and farther in a straight line. When you know you're heading, write it down and keep your eyes on the compass. And this was given to me by none other than my own father. My father, a merchant mariner, a commercial fisherman. Um, we had a small, a 20-foot boat, a Blackman fish machine, it's called. And we had this 20-foot boat. And I was, gosh, uh, about 12, 13 years old, I started fishing with my dad on this boat. And we would go commercial fishing on it. And we would take this 20-foot boat sometimes 60 miles offshore. And in these days... Um, there was no, for small craft, there was no um, GPS available. There's no such thing as a handheld GPS. Um, they didn't have the even the Loran units, the navigation units that would tell you where you are. Everything had to be done with good old-fashioned navigation, with paper charts and with numbers and with time and with speed. And you would go on a compass heading. And I remember... Um, my dad would tell me that, you know, you have to steer the boat super straight and you'd have to look at that compass and you would have to pay attention to that because when you were headed on your destination, that you would get to that point a lot faster, a lot straighter and with a lot less gas if you could just somehow keep the boat straight, if you didn't veer off course. I remember one particular instance, um, we were over 15 miles from San Diego and we were in a southerly direction. We were um, tuna fishing on some of the banks down in Mexico. And uh, while we were 50 some miles down in this little 20 foot boat, um, we were probably, I don't know, 30 miles off the beach of uh, Mexico doing this. And um, we had a compass. Um, our boat had about 50 gallons of gas. And uh, because there's not enough gas to go do these trips, because even when you're 50 nautical miles away and 50 back, it's way more than 100 miles because you're fishing and things. And so uh, we had about 40, 40, 50 gallons of gas on the boat and we would take four gas cans, five gallon gas cans along with us to supplement amount, the amount of fuel and we would pour those in as we would go. And so we, I remember this particular time we're fishing down there and we've you know, got our heading and we're fishing and we're done with the day of fishing and we're coming back and it's getting very, very rough. And the boat would get just under four nautical miles per gallon and so you would calculate how much fuel you had left. And we got to the point where we were coming back, it's very rough, and we weren't making speed, and we were, you know, definitely sucking more fuel in the gas. And we got to that point, and um, I could tell that um, things maybe weren't perfect. And we were looking in our watches, and um, we were looking, and we should have seen the Coronado Islands by then. And basically, the Coronado Islands is about 14 miles from San Diego. So when you see those islands, you know you're about 14, 15 miles from San Diego. And when you go past that island, you're going to hook a slight right when you're coming back, and you're going to be able to go right into Point Loma. And 
we should have seen the islands and we should have seen the islands and we should have seen the islands and we're looking at the gas and we're we're getting to the point where things are getting a little hairy and you can't see the islands we couldn't see the islands and somehow we felt perhaps we were off course or it was you know fairly overcast and very foggy and we kept going and going and going and as the fuel was going down and down and down my dad and i were looking at one another like what is going to happen and um you know you have a radio and perhaps somebody hears that radio but nobody wants to be adrift off the coast and you know drift into mexico it's just not a good thing and so um as we looked and we looked and we looked and we had been paying attention to the compass but it was a it was getting to the point where it was a, a little scary um because we were running out of gas and as we looked and looked and looked we never saw the islands and what came at us out of the mist uh in you know almost 45 minutes to an hour after we should have been seeing the islands and that's 45 minutes of of wondering what was going on and what was going to happen we actually see the point of point loma and the truth of it was and there was a cheer and a high five i'll tell you but the point was is that we were on course we couldn't necessarily see all the indicators that we were going the right way except for looking at that compass and having that gas calculated out and we made it back to point loma and got that boat on the trailer and uh, with a, some albacore and it was uh, something we looked back at and it was a a great trip after we had been through it but it didn't seem like a great trip at the time so having to trust when you can't see is really a discipline that we need to have and fathers we teach that to our children Nehemiah uh, chapter 4 verse 15 and it happened when our enemies heard it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing that all of us returned to the wall everyone to his work so it was when the from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears the shields the bows war armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that at one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built and one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, and they be our guard at night and by working party, and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. So they were washing. That was good. Not too long ago, I got back from a trip with my son. We went um, to Idaho to a place called Hell's Canyon, and it is aptly named because it is straight up and down, and it has a reputation of being one of the hardest places uh, to hunt in um, North America. And so it seemed like a pretty good idea um, to be in those mountains. I had never been there, uh, to have the challenge of the terrain, the, the marksmanship that is required uh, to harvest an animal in that. Um, it's a it's a real challenge and uh, it's well known in the hunting community and um, so we went my son and I and one active duty marine and another marine that had just gotten out of um, the marine corps and uh, was uh, going to his next his next uh, mission so to speak he was going to go back to school and so um, some great guys but very physically fit 
And uh, as we got there and we started to look at the terrain, um, what seemed like a great idea back at home, um, sitting on my couch, uh, reading about, you know, Hell's Canyon and, and the bear hunting there, what seemed like a great idea uh, when the task was before me, uh, started to look a little more daunting and started to uh, make me wonder if this was a good idea at all. And so as we progressed in this hunt, and at times they're, they're, they say about um, the thing about Idaho is if you don't like the weather, uh, that don't worry, it'll change in the next 15 minutes. And boy, it was true as we were glassing these canyons and we would go up 6,500 feet to glass down into uh, these canyons that were 2,000 feet below us. Um, as we did that, in the course of an hour and a half, it went from raining to so so much sun that you had to take your jacket off to snowing and fog and so it was just the weather was really rough and then as the um the wind started to blow off of the snowbanks and things uh where we were glassing in the canyons it just got unbearably cold and so after a couple days of that um the strength sort of uh, of the of the uh, investment in this mission uh was starting to wane a little bit and and thankfully, we, we did harvest a bear, and it, it, was, it was great, but it was an experience that um, I will never forget because it went from something that was going to be a lot of fun to something that was really a challenge, uh, something that was really excited about in the beginning to something that was really a challenge. And um, being in that situation uh, and in an environment I'm really not used to. I'm a Southern California guy, so dealing with that white stuff flying from out of the the sky was uh, a new thing for me, so to speak, and dealing and walking in snow uh, was a new thing for me, and so it was it was quite a challenge. But it seemed like a great idea at the time. Point four on your outline: the proof of our commitment is the length of our obedience. Long obedience—it's a—it's a term, it's a thing, so to speak, and it comes down to this: what you actually do is what you believe. Um, so let's say you really you work out and you're very consistent about it. Well, if you're working out physically and you're very consistent about it, it's something that you believe is a core value. We know that because you do it. And so um, long obedience as we do the right thing for a very long time can be a challenge for so many. And I know as a father, sometimes it appears there's no reward in that, um, that it's not glamorous, that um, uh, it can be a drudgery, that we can feel that we're taken advantage of you can go down the list when we're looking at the wrong thing rather than it being an honor and a privilege to be a father. But when it's all said and done, um, what we're measured by is that long obedience. That's what brings us success with our families. You see, um, long obedience is its not necessarily exciting. It might seem like a good idea at the time, but it's something that goes on and on and on. And so being empowered to do that is something that is very, very important. Um, I'm going to show you a picture in a second, and I want you to look at this picture. And what you see is um, three teenage girls, and um, the way they're dressed, they could look like they're going out to spend the day, go have lunch, or they're going out to um, go clothes shopping or just have a great time together as they're crossing the street. But if you'll notice, um, there's M16 uh, carbine machine guns uh, hanging over their shoulders. And uh, we know by that picture, I instantly knew where that was. And it's in Israel. And this is modern times where um, being in the army is compulsory for young people. 
Uh, it's part of what they do. Um, they're required to do that. And, and then even when they are not on duty, uh, they're required to have these weapons with them. And it is a nation that is still very much at war. It still has the sword and the trowel mentality, so to speak. The thing that you have to remember is this fight never stops. You pace yourself. Um, you remember because this fight never stops. It's something that continues. Um, the wall would have been done in half the time, to my best uh, estimate, if they didn't have to actually carry a gun too, so to speak. They didn't have to have this sword with them, so to speak, um, because their attention was split in this these two worlds. And from the sovereignty of the work and the practicality of the work, they had this this fight that they had to deal with in there. And so it took away time and attention from the actual building itself. And so uh, they would have got this done and they still finished quite remarkably, quite quickly uh, for people that were perfumers and, and for goldsmiths. Um, they were not professionals, so to speak. They finished quite quickly in, a, in just over 50 days, but they could have got this done in less than a month had they not have to have the worry of having to deal with the threats made against them. And they had weapons for a reason because God obviously sovereignly could have protected them with, you know, he's done so many things before. But they had weapons for a few reasons. And I believe one of the things, there was a physical reason for it. Um, uh, it I think it made them feel comfortable that they had something to hold on to, something just besides uh, knowing uh, that God was there for them and they were doing a holy work, but they had something physical uh, to do it. They were prepared Um like it or not, in uh, the uh, year 2020 was one of the most worrisome, uh, scary years for a lot of people. Uh, and not coincidentally, uh, federal background checks, uh, firearms checks, were at 39 million people had firearms background checks. And that doesn't represent just one weapon. That re can represent a, a dozen if it so chooses, if the person so chooses. But the NICS federal background check received th over 39 million requests for background checks. It was a, a record by, they say about 10 million, I believe you can look at the figures, but um, the fact is, is that people were worried, people were scared and people wanted a physical manifestation, I believe of something in their hand to protect them. Um, and it was a scary time for people. In fact, uh, they believe over 10 million of these background checks were by people who had never ever owned a weapon before. That tells you the state of people's uh, being, so to speak, uh, the fear, the level of fear that they had. And so I believe that they, part of their preparation, Nehemiah or God allowed this for them uh, to have something to hold on to and to remember this. And so uh, their swords. But the, the second part is very spiritual. You see, the enemy knew that they would use them. The history and the background of Israel is it's littered with people that came against God and uh, God, uh, God's people outnumbered uh, uh, people with tribes, things of people that came against them that had way more weapons and way more um, numbers uh, were defeated by the Israelis using very simple weapons, uh, not being uh, warriors, so to speak, not, not being a, a war tribe, not outnumbering the enemy, but God using these people and these very crude weapons, very simple weapons to defeat enemies. And so the reputation is that the, when 
the God of the Hebrews, his people were armed, is that you will be defeated. And that was the reputation of what happened when God armed his people. When you're a dad, and I've been a father now for, what, 33 years. When you're a dad, um, that job never ends, um, ever. It never ends. You're always a dad. Uh, you never stop being one. Um, I am still a father to my adult children. They still come to me for advice. Uh, sometimes I, I'll even give them advice. They're maybe not even ask them for. I try not to do that, but you do. But when you're a dad, you never stop being a dad. And it is a responsibility and a joy and a mission that lasts a very long time. And the same goes for when you're a mom. Uh, you have that, you're still a parent. You're still a mom to even your adult kids. Uh, when you're a Christian, it's a long thing. It's not a short-term thing. It's a, a long-haul thing. Even when you're an architect, uh, you, you have these jobs and these stations in life. And even when you stop doing them, um, you still do them. Even when your primary responsibility is gone, you still do them. And it's the same in God's kingdom. As we serve the Lord, um, we never, ever just arrive. We never get to a place of serenity, so to speak, of peace, where the fight is over and we're looking out over that placid lake and and uh, we have that peaceful view of the mountains. We just, we don't get there uh, where we ever stop being part of the equation or stop being part of the story. Um, but we do get there um, with our relationships is where we've matured to a point where we recognize that it's not being away from the storm. It's not being away from the fight that gives us peace and that gives us shelter. It's being sheltered during the fight and being sheltered during the storm. And no matter how scary and how hard it works, um, it looks. Having that peace as the world comes apart around us and knowing that we have a heavenly father that loves us so much that he pays the ultimate sacrifice for our salvation in the new covenant, the giving of his son, the rising of his son for the forgiveness of her sins. God bless you. Uh, for you dads out there, I pray you have a blessed day and that uh, your children adore you and they treat you and uh, you don't have to pay for lunch today. I hope that works out for you and God bless you. Now, next week, I really encourage you to tune in and see Pastor David and I think you will be blessed. So God bless you. Uh, let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you so much for um, our online congregation, Lord. And I know for whatever reason, they can't be there with us, but Lord, they are, and we care about them. And Lord, so please, Lord, um, encourage them, lead them, direct them. Thank you for letting me teach these last three weeks, Lord, and going through the word. And I've learned so much as I've looked at God's word and his promises, uh, not only to his people back then, but his promise now. And so, Father, lead us and guide us. May we be missionaries to the world, Lord, to our neighbors and to our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. 